Hello, and welcome to Original Jurisdiction, the podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of Original Jurisdiction, the newsletter. You're listening to the very first episode of Original Jurisdiction, which is long overdue. I've been meaning to launch a podcast to accompany the newsletter for the longest time, but it was taking me forever because I wanted everything to be perfect. But I finally decided to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good, or at least what I hope is good or decent. So here we are. One of the thoughts I consoled myself with is that podcasts can evolve. In fact, some of my favorite podcasts today are very different from how they were at launch. So I consider this podcast to be a work in progress. I welcome your comments, criticisms, and suggestions, which will help it improve over time. Here's my current vision. I'll post an episode every other week. They'll run between 30 and 45 minutes. The typical episode will involve me interviewing an interesting, influential, or important person within the law, often someone I've mentioned in the newsletter. If you wind up enjoying today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, which will let you know about future episodes. And please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already, so you can get emails about future episodes of this podcast, as well as all the other fun stories I write for the newsletter. You can read and subscribe to the newsletter at davidlatt.substack.com. I would also welcome sponsorship. If you might be interested in sponsorship opportunities at Original Jurisdiction for the podcast, the newsletter, or both, please email me at davidlatt.substack.com. Now, on to today's guest. I wanted to get a big name for my inaugural episode, and I succeeded. Many of my guests will be friends, and today's guest is no exception. Back when he lived in New York, we'd get our families together for playdates, but he hasn't been spending as much time in New York lately because he's too busy litigating cases across the country. My guest today is Alex Spiro, one of the nation's top trial lawyers, with a very strong claim to being the best trial lawyer in the country under the age of 40. He's a partner at the litigation powerhouse of Quinn Emanuel, where he serves as co-chair of the investigations, government enforcement, and white-collar defense practice. As lead counsel, Alex has tried well over 50 cases to verdict. Unlike many big law litigators, he's a true trial lawyer. He takes cases to trial, and he wins. He counts numerous celebrities as clients, and he has won victories before juries for such figures as rapper-turned-entrepreneur Jay-Z, former NBA star Tabo Cephalosha, and the world's richest person, Tesla CEO Elon Musk. Just this week, Alex was hired by Kanye West to litigate over West's failed partnership with Gap. Alex is now representing Elon Musk in Delaware Chancery Court, where Musk is trying to get out of his agreement to purchase Twitter for $44 billion. That case will go to trial in mid-October. Alex grew up in the Boston area. He majored in psychology at Tufts, graduating summa cum laude, and worked for several years at McLean Hospital, the celebrated psychiatric hospital with many famous patients, where he focused on working with adolescents, especially ones with Asperger's. He thought about going into neuroscience or psychiatry, but then concluded that he might be able to do more for young people as an advocate. So he went to Harvard Law School, graduating in 2008. From 2008 to 2013, he worked in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, where he really cut his teeth as a trial lawyer. He won convictions of Rodney Alcala, the so-called dating game serial killer, and serial murderer Travis Woods. From 2013 to 2017, Alex worked with Ben Brofman, one of the most famous celebrity lawyers, a lawyer to many celebrities, and a celebrity in his own right. While working with Ben, Alex built up his own stable of star clients, 
including, it seemed to me, half of the NBA. In 2017, Alex joined Quinn Emanuel as a partner. According to a profile of Alex by Jack Newsham of Insider, Alex is one of the firm's top 10 business generators, which is saying a lot because average profits per partner at Quinn last year were over $5.7 million, according to the American lawyer. In our conversation, we covered a lot of ground. We talked about the Twitter case, the secrets of Alex's success in front of juries, conventional wisdom of trial lawyers that he disagrees with, how to win seemingly unwinnable cases, and his important work in the areas of criminal justice reform and racial equity. Without further ado, here's my interview of Alex Spiro. So tell me, where are you beaming in from? I know that earlier, when Emmanuel launched a big Miami office and you were going to be part of that. Of course, you have this huge case in Delaware Chancery. Uh, you uh, were in New York. Uh, where are you right now? I'm in Miami right now, but uh, where I am is very much a, a moving target. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And as we're recording this, of course, you are gearing up for the huge Twitter v. Musk case. And I know there's not too much you can say about that, but... Is there something brief you can say about just how you're feeling generally about the case or anything like that? I know I've seen you quoted in news stories about the case, specific aspects of it. Like all cases, I think the truth will eventually come out. And when you've got this many people focused on something, as long as you get a fair shot in court, the truth will come out and that's all you can ask for. So this is a little different from some of the things you're most famous for. I think you're most famous for being a trial lawyer who tries cases before juries. This, of course, is before a chancellor, a bench trial, one judge. How do you think of that? Do you approach cases differently, whether you're arguing before a judge versus a jury? Yeah, I think you have to. I would still always prefer a jury. I'd still prefer a diverse audience than one person. One person is a lot hanging in the balance and people come into the things with preconceived notions, all people. So I do rather try a jury trial. But when you're in front of a judge, you just have a jury of one and you have to realize that. And, and I think you have to really focus on the things that are going to matter for the board. You probably have to lean a little bit more heavily into law experts and other formalities than you would in front of a jury. And it may very well be that the stage and the impressions you're leaving start much earlier. They don't just start when the gavel comes down and the trial begins. They start at inception. So, I mean, there are for sure differences and different approaches. So it's interesting when I think about you and your practice, you seem to be somebody who sort of combines, I guess, sort of being able to relate to juries and that kind of street smart, common sense sort of man-on-the-street aspect to it. But at the same time, you have this Harvard Law School pedigree, you're working at this elite law firm. How do you think of yourself and your practice in sort of these contrasts in terms of big law versus trial lawyer who can really mix it up? I'm a trial lawyer. I'm not much of a big firm lawyer, frankly. And I don't really think about it in those terms. I had sort of a regular grown-up period. I went to law school sort of by accident. I was focused on mental health and psychology before that. And I do sort of regular things and interact with lots and lots of people. And so I think that's more of the imprint on me in the way that I view trying cases than anything I learned in law school or at a big firm. I think it's the way you relate to people, which is based on you know human experience, or at least a lot of it is. So that's interesting you mentioned your background in mental health and psychology. Can you talk a little bit about that? I believe you studied that undergrad at Tufts and you worked at McLean for a time. Can you talk about how 
that background and that experience informs your approach to trying cases? I think that it actually is mostly brought to bear in cross-examination and into trying to figure out why people do the things that they do. I think people assume perhaps that it's it's in like picking a jury or yeah. I don't really think that's so much what it is. It's more just that, you know, people do all sorts of things and think all sorts of things and why they do what they do is really psychology, right? And if you can understand that and take a step back, you don't have to look at things so linearly and you're more likely to be able to break somebody down because you're really seeing through them and into them. I'm curious, you mentioned jury selection just briefly, and one piece of trial lawyer wisdom you sometimes hear is, oh, cases are won and lost in jury selection in voir dire. What do you think of that? I don't do very much of it, frankly. <laughs> now that I do work at a big firm, I have an argument every trial about hiring jury consultants and focus yeah. groups, and I never want to. And everybody says, oh, that's because you're brash. And I sort of think, well, that's because I don't think... It's that helpful. Listen, the people that you're picking are people that you're picking that you feel that you can have an imprint on and will have an imprint on you. Another person can't pick a jury for you. So if that's right, then it doesn't really matter. Even a novice jury selector is going to be better than somebody else selecting the jury for you, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing is jury selection can happen very, very fast. And so you're going to have to make very quick judgments based on people's mannerisms, appearance, body language, and things like that. I tried a case in, you know, three big firms, each had jury consultants and each had to have their vote cast and everybody had an opinion. There were like 30 voices. And I was thinking, geez, Louise, I mean, you're going to step on yourselves. So, you know, a lot of it's gut, a lot of it's feel. And then, you know, listen, it, it smooths itself out over 12 people, hopefully a little mm -hmm. bit. And in terms of one comment you made, which is like, it's won or lost at that moment. I mean, I don't really think so, right? I think it's won or lost, you know, in the contest itself. Yep. And listen, unless you get a really bad runaway kind of jury, or there are people that cannot be moved, sort of, right? Sure. Otherwise, you know, I think you get a fair cross-section, you get a fair trial. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we talked about jury consultants. I think you probably put less stock in them than many. We talked about voir dire. Are there other pieces of conventional wisdom of trial lawyers that maybe you disagree with? Like sayings like, oh, don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to, or, you know, things like that. Well, I disagree with that one. Um, <laughs> I've never subscribed to that view. There's lots of questions that you don't know the answer to, but the answer can't hurt you. I'm a big, you know, you got to take risks in life and in court. And if you don't, you're just using the same playbook as everybody else. Okay. So if my opponent has the playbook that apparently every person at a big firm seems to have, then he's going to prepare his witness to expect only questions I know the answers to, right? So everybody seems to over-prepare witnesses too, which I'm not a big huh. believer in. I get chastised for this too, but I'm not much of an over-preparer of a witness. Okay. I think it makes them come across as unnatural. And even if you're being very careful in over-preparation, you end up putting your imprint on them more so. And even if it's not coached, it can look coached. And I don't oh. mind an occasional bad answer. Like, let it become natural and let that person have their raw moments, you know. And again, some people will say that's brash, that's on the fly, but that's just sort of how I look at it. But no, I don't at all subscribe to the view, don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to because... 
again, they're going to be prepared for those, right? If you've got one piece of impeachment material, they're going to be prepared on that. They're not going to be prepared on something that they don't expect you to have the guts to ask and some area that they expect you won't explore. I think another thing that people do that I just don't subscribe to is you should always put on a case. I don't think that that's necessarily right. I believe the burden of proof is a pretty powerful thing. And I don't think that you should feel that you have to put on a case. If you if they don't have a case, what are you worried about? Mm, okay. And so I'm less likely to put on cases. I also am very against expert witnesses, seemingly. Mm. I think they look like paid experts, which is what they huh. are. And I think there's almost always a way to get out from the witnesses you have in the case some sort of quasi-expert notion that then makes the same point. So unless you have some very technical piece of a case, and I mean very technical, I just think if it's a case about investors, surely your witnesses will be some investors. And so you don't mm. need to hire some investor to tell you what the investor textbook says. Just ask the investors. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then also the other side has experts and you're okay at cross-examination. Hopefully you never need to call yours. And so I just think a lot of time and mental energy is spent on that when juries are just not that move. But again, I seem to be the only one who thinks this. So maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You should actually write a book. I feel like a lot of these trial lawyers, these famous trial lawyers have written books. You should write a book about your approach to trial because I think you're different. I think you have an unusual approach to trying cases that obviously has worked very well. But <laughs> I know you're a little busy right now. <laughs> so I'm curious, if you had to identify one secret of your success for trying a case to a jury. Is there some kind of secret sauce or some particular thing you could distill it down to? I have a few comments. One is, again, not using the playbook. If I want to do something in a courtroom, say something in a courtroom, or try to find a piece of evidence, it's not sort of like, is that in the playbook? It's like, that's what I want. That's what I want the jury to see and know about. Is there a reason why I can't do it? Like a real ah. reason why I can't do it, I think is a better way to approach I mean, maybe it's a better way to approach everything, but I think certainly things within the law, because it's a lot of sort of starting in the opposite direction, which is, oh, this is what we need to do versus what wouldn't anybody else do? And if you mm. think about it in the inverse, you're only stopped when you have to be stopped. That kind of thinking and the element of surprise is probably the number one thing that I would say, which is that I never want the other side to know what I'm even thinking, let alone what my plan is, let alone what I'm going to ask the witnesses, let alone anything, really. When you're trying cases against all the big firms, they are so overprepared on every possible thing, probably more prepared than me. But if they don't know, then they, you can't prepare for the unknown necessarily, or not as well. And so I think that's the second thing that I would say, and probably the bigger of the two. And then the third comment I would make is, I pick what the case is that the trial's about. Nobody else picks. Not the judge, not the prosecutor, big firm on the other side. They don't get to pick what the case is about. I get to pick what the case is about. Meaning what the jury is going to remember from the case, what they're going to think the case is about, is your choice. Okay. You don't get to pick the facts, but you get to pick how to filter the facts to mm. them. And what happened in the real world isn't the same as what happens in the courtroom or the way you frame it in the courtroom. What matters here and what this case is about is whatever you decide it's about. You know, I tried a case for Jay-Z last year about royalties and licenses and all of this. But what it really was about was his name, what it means for him and what it means for others. And 
the need to protect his name and why. And yeah. if that's what it's about, that's what it's about. And I think if you ask a juror three, five years later, or even, you know, three, five months later, and they're, you know, walking their dog or going about their life, oh, I heard you sat on a jury. What was the case about? You want the answer to be somebody was trying to abuse Mr. Carter's name. Somebody was trying to take mm -hmm. from him that he worked so hard and so many people work so hard to develop that's so important for the world. And if that's their answer, you won. And by the way, that case for Jay-Z was a stunning win. They sued him asking for millions. And then in the end, they ended up owing him millions. So that was an incredible victory of yours. But I'm curious about this framing point. Here's another example. You were representing Elon Musk in the so-called pedo guy tweet case where there was this Thai cave rescue and he uh, referred to on Twitter, I think, one of the other people involved in the rescue as a quote-unquote pedo guy, which this guy sued him for claiming it was a reference to pedophilia, accusing him of being a pedophile. And as I told you around the time that that case was being litigated, maybe I wasn't quite so blunt, but I kind of thought, oh, you kind of have an uphill climb so how did you frame that case to get a victory out of that? A lot of people, myself included, I'll admit, kind of thought you were toast. Case was about what were Mr. Musk's real motives. Okay. And who drew first blood mm. and the power and importance of the First Amendment. Some combination of those things. I mean, why did Mr. Musk, as busy as he is, travel across the world to try to save those kids in that cave? And yeah. if you believed he was there to save those kids in that cave, and it's hard to find anything but a very big heart within him. And I think everybody in that room felt that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they tried to couch it as, you know, billionaire bully picks on caveman <laughs> who was the hero. And the question really was, well, was he or is he overstating that and really was part of his plan? You know, it, it's not a like an elaborate plan, but but it was picking a fight with, who some people call the world's most powerful man, an attempt by him to ratchet up his own status. And mm -hmm. if he drew first blood, then a responsive comment in kind that was a throwaway insult is not exactly as significant as the first chapter of the story, which is what this should have always been about, the miracle of those kids and the miracle yeah. of the rescuers, not about a spat. Okay. And then the final chapter, of course, is the First Amendment doesn't protect compliments and happy speech. It <laughs> protects unfavorable speech. It protects all speech. Yep. And so if we start policing speech, where are we? We're in a bad place in our society and in our world. And so we don't want to police speech. Let's not do that. That makes sense. And what I really like about your framing in this case is you really also look at the underlying principles. And so that makes me think about the arc of your career more generally and all the principles that you've litigated. And I think a lot of people may not know this or may not know it quite as well as your work for Jay-Z and Elon Musk and half the NBA, but you've done a lot of work on behalf of criminal justice reform. And a lot of defendants, like, for example, Pedro Hernandez, who was kept on Rikers for, I guess, what, like more than a year or something while he waited for trial and then the charges ended up getting dropped. Can you talk a little bit about that, some of your work on behalf of criminal justice reform and why it means so much to you? The first unit I worked at at McLean Hospital, which was called East House, was a group of teenagers that were not fitting in. They were suspended. They were without parents. They were not fitting into their world. And they went to this 
mental health facility to try to get better, to try to get their legs underneath them so that they could have, you know, a fruitful and happy life. I'm a big believer in second chances. And I remember those kids. I remember every kid I worked with. And this is now, you know, I'm dating myself. This is 20 years ago. Fighting for those kids is why I went to law school. When I was at law school, I wanted to fight for people. It was sort of altruistic and corny as it may sound. I mean, I kind of felt like fighting for the underdog was the reason to do this. And, you know, and listen, my, my career started as a prosecutor in, in the criminal justice system. That's the stuff that I know best. The rest mm-hmm. of this stuff, I get a case, I learn licensing law. I didn't study licensing right. law. So in any event, those kinds of principles and thoughts stay with me more so than everything else combined. And yeah. when I get opportunities and people ask me, hey, did you see this? We'd really like your help here. Would you pour your efforts into this? And I think that it's an important issue that affects that case and cases beyond it. Somebody will come to me, and in that case, the Kennedys came to me in Pedro Hernandez's case and said, this is kid sitting in Rikers after Khalif Browder and other tragedies at Rikers. And it was the bail reform movement. And they really thought that he was innocent and that a lot of good could be done for other kids if we could prove yeah. that he was innocent and end him out of jail. And so I helped. And I try to take on as many of those cases as I, I can. There was a view that under the Trump administration, the immigration policies in this country were becoming a little draconian. And as those conversations were happening, 21 Savage was taken into custody and Mr. Carter and others came to me and we got him out of jail. And that seemed to have a byproduct of helping the fight to bring light to that issue and give hope to other people. When those things happen, I think it's more meaningful than just trying some big civil case. And I try to do as much of that as I can. And that's the part of the practice that I like the most. The 21 Savage case is another great example of a prominent public interest-oriented case you handle on behalf of somebody very well-known, but going to a lot of bigger issues within our legal system. Is there a win in your career that you are most proud of, whether it's civil, criminal, whether it was at trial or not at trial? Is, Is there any particular case that either you're most proud of or that maybe even not necessarily most proud of, but maybe it resonates for you or it has a certain sentimental value for you? I don't know if there's one. A lot of the things that I feel most passionate about, I've been lucky to have some case that just seemed to come to me. A lot of the issues I feel strongest about, I have had some luck in being able to fight that issue and often fight that issue publicly. And whether it was my view on immigration in that moment or the way that Rikers and Bail was operating then, the cases that end up having an imprint, and even some of the civil cases, right? I stand by what I said about the First Amendment and hope that people remember that. The two that are popping into my mind right now, one is, you know, this entire country is now alternative dispute resolution oriented. You buy a Starbucks card and you get burned by (laughs) a cup, you go to arbitration. And it's really a factory and a mill of justice happening outside of public eye. And It tends to be very old, no offense to the folks that are doing it, but elderly or older ex-judges and folks that are from a different time period in which there was less focus on diversity, less focus on second chances, less focus on lots of things that there's more focuses on today. And so I'd always noticed this and thought that it would have a different impact to have that as your entire pool of ex-judges or, you know, senior lawyers 
I had this case for Jay-Z and we got a pool of 200 arbitrators and we just noticed there's not a single African-American. I think there was one out of 200. Huh. I, I don't remember. Or when they gave us the subsection of it, it was like, you know, zero out of 100. Wow. And, you know, Jay had the guts to file for a TRO and stop the proceedings. And it had an impact. It had an impact. They passed a law in California about keeping mm-hmm. censuses of alternative dispute resolution. You know, I, I get calls from, oh, you know, somebody in Oslo saying, hey, they're changing the way they do this. They're thinking through the way they do this. You know, they're having a symposium on this. I mean, mm. I think it has had an impact. And then the other one that comes to mind, and it's maybe more of a personal thing, which is the Tabo Cephalosha case. I was a kid trying that case when I look back. And it was really the beginning of the beginning of the issues that became at the forefront of, you know, police violence or police abusive force on people in the African-American community. Mr. Cephalosha had actually tweeted, I don't remember, some social media on the concept of, you know, when Eric Garner happened, that it could have been him. When he had just reflexively said that online. And then the next thing you know, he's there in New York City in the playoffs and he's on the ground and his leg is broken and there's a white police officer standing above him. That case was highly followed and it got a lot of the NBA players and a lot of the community involved. And I think put an early light on some of the issues that would later tragically impact the country. That was another great case because here you were representing Thabo Cephalosha, this NBA star, and he was the victim of police violence, brutality. And as I recall, he was the one who was hit with criminal charges for I don't even know what. And then in the end, of course, you got him an acquittal at trial and then you filed a civil lawsuit, which was very successful. And I do think of that as one of the early cases. And I think it also suggested to me that kind of what he was saying about how that Eric Garner could have been him. He's a famous, wealthy professional athlete, but he also could be subjected to racism and mistreatment at the hands of the police. Yeah. You know, it shows it affects everybody. And, you know, it got a lot of people talking about it. I wish people had talked about it more in advance so that it didn't have to come to such a traumatic sort of moment in this country's history, which happened soon thereafter. But at least it keeps people talking in the right context. And, you know, listen, this is why trials are great, because things can play out publicly so that people can really see what the facts are and the truth are and debate things so that, you know, people in society can move forward. Without trials, if everything happened in secret arbitrations and in back office handshakes, then nobody would ever get to see these things play out and wouldn't shape their opinion and move society forward. And so that's really ultimately why trials, I think, are so important. Are you then worried about what some people are calling the decline or the death of the jury trial? So many things get settled. So many things get pleaded out. Is that a concern? I'm guessing, though, that you still have a very active trial docket because you're known as a trial lawyer. So people come to you with the few trials that are out there. But as a larger systemic issue, are you concerned about how we have many fewer trials? Yes. And I was even more concerned during the pandemic. Mm. or during the heights of the pandemic, is this going to go one step farther? Zoom hearings are fine for issues between lawyers and scheduling and whatnot, but they can't be a substitute for credibility in person. And a lot of people sat in jail. A lot of people sat waiting for justice during that time period. And there was already a backup in the system and there already was a decline in the jury trial. And so, 
you know, let's hope that that doesn't keep trending in that direction because I think that's very, very bad and even worse for the criminal justice system, frankly, because then there's just no checks. There's no checks on the system. Yeah. Well, I actually am curious on the criminal justice point. You are very focused on criminal justice reform, but at the same time, you were also a prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office for a number of years. Do you have mixed views on it? I assume you're not a defund the police type. You worked with police officers. You know that they can do good. I mean, do you have some sort of big picture thoughts on on where that conversation is right now nationally? Yes. And no, I'm sort of in the middle of the... I mean, I I don't have either of the most extreme views that you see publicly. I'm involved in criminal justice reform and seen on that side of things. But no, I still have many friends within the NYPD and FBI and, you know, know how important what their work is. And obviously the idea that you'd have a society with no rules of law enforcement doesn't really make any sense. And so, you know, I just think it's, again, it's sort of where this conversation started. It's about looking at things in a little bit of gray, right? The world mm-hmm. is not black and white, even when it appears in the media or appears to be black and white. It needs to be gray. And our society tends to go too far in both directions. And so it's like, you know, autocephalosia and watching a prominent, sophisticated person have their leg broken by the police for no real reason should wake us up a little bit so we could start talking about it and asking ourselves questions. Well, should the police officers have different training? Should they live in the communities in which they police? Mm -hmm. You know, what is implicit racial bias? And if Mm -hmm. we were thinking about these questions a little bit earlier, then I think we would be better off rather than waiting for, you know, African-American person dying and then another one and then another one and then another one. And then you know, throwing the book at the entire concept of law enforcement strikes me as not a productive way to handle the issue and what our country seems to do too often. I just think we have to all remain level-headed and think through what's the right way to marry all these issues. Mm -hmm. Shifting gears a little bit, we've talked a lot about your successes and your wins, but you can't win them all, not even you, Alex Spiro. So is there a loss that you most regret or is there a case that you really felt just not happy about the outcome? I don't know, just like the successes. I don't know if there's one that you most regret. After being a prosecutor, when you leave and you're like, okay, I need a case or I need to do something, most of the cases you get early on, at least for me, were criminal defense cases. That's just sort of how it starts, probably for everybody. And, you know, some people take guilty pleas and go to jail. I mean, they just mm-hmm. do. Some people take guilty pleas and are a branded a convict. And... That's a sad thing. No matter what, you know, those people have families and lives and dreams. And a lot of them are probably still up at night with regret and still suffering from that years later. And so all those people, any of those people that had to go into a jail cell, that's a pretty sad thing. And I don't have one that sort of stands out. And I gave my advice and judgment on whether or not somebody should take a deal People get to decide their own fate, obviously. But those people, that's always the ones that are going to stay with you. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's right. We've talked quite a bit about your work on the criminal side. What's the balance these days in your practice between civil versus criminal work? I know you're the co-head of the White Collar and Investigations practice at Quinn Emanuel, but of course now you're litigating the largest civil case currently pending on the planet. So what's the balance right now? How would you describe the mix of cases in your wheelhouse these days? Definitely mostly civil, super majority civil. But it can change. And this case will end too. 
And if afterwards the cases that I take could change the balance very quickly. So I'm not sort of wedded to one versus another, but I tend to like the cases that I think are most interesting. Sure, sure. Now, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you didn't sort of see yourself as a quote-unquote big law lawyer. You were a prosecutor. You worked at the boutique of Ben Brothman, is another lawyer well-known for defending famous clients. Do you feel that there is any kind of tension or weirdness between working at a big firm but having some of these cases of yours which are sometimes high profile or involve celebrities? And do you think sometimes corporations that hire you or Quinn say, oh, isn't he a celebrity lawyer? Is there any kind of tension between big law and the kind of stuff you see on page six? There's no tension for me. I don't really care. But you might want to ask the firm or one of my corporate clients, but not from my perspective. It doesn't have one speck of impact on me on a day-to-day basis. And how could it, right? How could I be an advocate and live my life if I was worried or thought? I I tell you one anecdote, which is when I started representing Mr. Musk, he wasn't, you know, time man of the year. He was still probably the most successful businessman and a visionary on the planet, frankly. But I don't think people at that time, and this is years ago now, realized what impact he would have on the world, you know, Mm -hmm generationally. And I'll always remember this as a CEO, well-known CEO that called me and said, what are you doing? Are you going to go represent him? You represent me. And I was (laughs) thinking, that's interesting and all, but there's something great in him also, even if it's different than you're great. So yeah, listen, everyone's going to have their opinion. You can't be a fighter and an advocate if any of it moves you too much. That's fair. And I have to say, If you had to pick a big firm for your practice, I think Quinn is a great platform. John Quinn is also a very sort of larger-than-life personality. It's a firm that's litigation-focused. You have fewer conflicts with all these corporate clients. It's a firm that's not afraid of taking risks. It seems if I had to pick a firm in the AMLAW 100 or AMLAW 200 for you and your practice, I think that that does seem like a very natural fit. But let me ask you, your career seems to go in these four or five year sort of chunks. You're at McLean for four or five years. You're at the DA's office for five-ish years. Do you plan to stay at Quinn for the foreseeable future? Or do you sometimes wonder about your post-Quinn existence or other future enterprises? This last chapter is more than four-ish years. <laughs> okay. uh, some of that's the pandemic, mind you. I don't want people thinking I'm standing still. I, I think <laughs> you got to back out some of that. But Listen, I have no interest in working for another law firm. I don't know what I'm going to do next or what I'm going to do when I grow up, but I'm hoping there's more hills to climb and there's more things to do. But I'm interested in in what I'm doing right now and what I have to do and get on with today. I'm still challenged and excited about it. And I still have some cases that still need to be tried and the truth needs to come out. And so that's where my head is today. So, of course, we're all thinking about the Twitter Musk case and There's been a lot of turnover in the GC's office at Tesla. And I saw this tweet from Mr. Musk looking for, you know, really tough, smart street fighter lawyers. Would you ever want to go work for either Tesla or Mr. Musk? Is that something that could be on the radar for you? I got news for you. I do work for Tesla and Mr. Musk. (laughs) True. (laughs) I don't have to deal with that. (laughs) (laughs) Random question. This is kind of, you know, we've been talking about all the pretty heavy stuff and the justice system. So I was noticing that whenever we text, I get the green from you of a non-iPhone user. And then I read in a profile as I was preparing for this, you know, obviously we've known each other for years, but I do my research. I read that you still use a BlackBerry. And then I thought maybe that's why I get the green from you rather than the blue of an iPhone user when we message. Is that true? 
I'm still on Android. The weird thing is I lost my BlackBerry. I didn't lose it, but I lost oh. it because it shut down because of the uh, 4G, 5G. So there's all sorts of technology things yes. that are above my pay grade. Okay. But I have an Android. I have an Android okay. and it's easier for me to type on and it's BlackBerry-ish. Okay. But yes, okay. I've always had a BlackBerry. I've never had an iPhone in my life. And people will comment. I get two comments usually. How come your texts and emails are somewhat incoherent? It's like you're talking to yourself. <laughs> I get that a lot. And then sometimes I get the, and how come it's a different color? And the truth is, I like talking to people and meeting with people in person. And sure. I'm multitasking. And I think I'm not good at electronic communication. But also the truth is I have a Android. Well, let me close with a couple of standard questions I kind of want to ask all my guests. The first is, what do you like the least about the law? Doing it for too long. <laughs> okay. I don't really like things that are backwards looking that are pegged to what happened before. Okay. Because and that's, that's yeah. the opposite of progressive thought. And I think that very much frustrates other non-lawyers like visionaries like Mr. Musk. And it's a little too in the box for the way I like to think about things. Okay. Second question that I wanted to ask you is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? A basketball coach, maybe? <laughs> I thought you were going to say a doctor or a psychiatrist, given your pre-law school stuff. Yeah, I still would like to maybe have another chapter doing something that you know helps, helps kids, helps people coming up in the world, and whether it's in mental health or, or whatnot. That's, okay. that's another possible career path. I think it was supposed to be the career path, and maybe I'll do something with that and, and in that in the next chapter or two. Okay, fair enough. Third question, how much sleep do you get each night? Very little. Um, okay. <laughs> I wouldn't copy that. I've always been a, not a good sleeper. A few hours a night, try to get four. Five is a big one. Wow. I don't want you to think I'm up writing motions and things. I'm just restless. Okay. And then I guess last, any final words of wisdom, especially for listeners who look at your life and career and say, I want to be Alex? Be careful what you wish for. Try hard and don't be afraid to take chances. People want safety. And I think people end up making career choices, picking the cases they work on and things that are very much safety. And so, you know, a lateral associate that wants to talk or somebody wants to know if they should go to law school, I always just ask them, if you try to do what you're talking about and it doesn't go well, right, or it's wrong, what do you think happens? Tell me what the downside case is. And nobody can ever really tell me. Mm. Some people have luxuries. I'm mindful of some people trying to help family members and sure. make ends meet. You have to be fortunate enough to be able to be in a position where you can take some risk. But if you are, you should, because this isn't a dress rehearsal. You might as well go for it. Well, that's an excellent note to end on. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing your insight. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I hope when you come back Northeast, we can meet up in person at some point. Good. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Talk to you later. Thanks again to Alex for joining me. I found his insight into trial practice to be fascinating. I don't know that his approach can work for everyone, but it's obviously working for him. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. He's a podcasting pro, and he has been an invaluable source of wisdom and guidance for me in putting this first episode together. Finally, my thanks to all of you, the listeners to and readers of Original Jurisdiction, the podcast and newsletter would not be possible without your support. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt.substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter at David Latt, Instagram at David Benjamin Latt, Facebook at David Latt, and LinkedIn. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And please subscribe to the original Jurisdiction newsletter, if you don't already, over at davidlatt.substack.com. Both the podcast and newsletter are almost entirely reader-supported, so I literally can't do this without you. Alex Spiro is a tough act to follow, but my second guest will be even more exciting to at least some of you, those of you who are Supreme Court nerds and appellate aficionados. So please tune in two weeks from now to find out who it might be. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. Thank you.